Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today, July 12th, is the official publication date of my new book coming out with Verso Books called Red Valkyries, Feminist Lessons from Five Revolutionary Women. And I'm very excited that obviously one of these revolutionary women is Alexandra Kollontai. So I am going to throw a 50% discount code in the show notes. So if you're interested in the book, you can check it out. Also, if you are a Verso book club member, I believe that the book is one of their July picks for their Verso book club. And if you are a book club member, I also think you have free access to the ebook. So that's pretty exciting. It's always such a anticlimax in some ways when a book comes out because you've been working on it for so very long. And when it finally comes out, you've read it so many times that you're kind of tired of it. And so suddenly it's out there in the world and it feels a bit like a delayed gratification. I'm actually in a weird state these days. I managed to get over my COVID, but I think I have some lingering effects of the virus because in the first place, I'm incredibly tired all of the time. And I just feel the need quite randomly to take a nap. Uh, And I think that that's one sign of long COVID. But the other thing that's really been hard to deal with is the brain fog. And I've asked a few people who have also had this, and they promise me that it can linger for a couple of weeks, maybe even a month or two, but that it does in fact lift. But I will say that it is truly debilitating in in some moments because I'll be thinking about something or I'll be talking to somebody or I'll be trying to read through an article and it really does feel like my brain clouds over and just doesn't want to work. It's like I'm thinking through molasses sometimes. And for those of you who have had this experience, I really, you know, would love your advice on how to deal with it because I'm finding it a really strange experience to just not be able to think in the way that I'm used to thinking or to write in the way that I'm used to writing. And so that has been a, a struggle. And I, you know, I thought that I was over the COVID and I was, you know, obviously I don't feel sick anymore. But the lingering effects of the fatigue and of the brain fog are really quite strange uh, to me. And I'm really hoping that they will lift sooner rather than later because not only do I have work that I need to be doing, but I also, you know, have to get back into the classroom and start teaching again in the fall. But anyway, I'm going to read today the second part of the essay from 1919, Forms of Organization of Women Workers in the West, which is the second part of this little pamphlet, Women Workers Struggle for Their Rights. Now, I will 
just give you the heads up ahead of time that this essay is somewhat repetitive of the earlier essay that I read, but Kolontai does make some interesting new and original points. And most importantly, as we've been talking about, she really does once again try to defend this idea of having women's organizations be contained within the larger party structure. The second type of socialist women's organizations consists of those which are divisions of the party itself, that is, existing not outside but within it as special organs, commissions, committees, bureaus, or secretariats, to whom the party entrusts the special task of serving the women proletariat. This is the vital and acceptable type. Extensive and many-sided activities have fallen to the lot of these special collectives, activities which are especially varied in Germany. The basic loosening of the soil for the socialist harvest also begins here, as does the preparation of young forces for the role of future women leaders and the publishing of a women's party journal and the concern about the fate of the children of the working class. For example, the Commission for the Defense of Children in Germany or the English committees concerned with the fate of school children, the hot dinners, summer colonies, and so on. And finally, the organization of special political actions related to voting rights for women, such as took place in 1908-1909 in Prussia, apropos of the electoral reforms. The Women's Bureau, Commissioned, and Secretariats also undertake the responsibility for the organization of women's meetings, special courses, the calling of women's socialist conferences, the publication of brochures and pamphlets, in brief, the broadly based work of agitation and propaganda among the women proletariat. In the present time, there is practically no country in which the party would not assign work with women to a special branch of its activity. The necessity of the separation is felt by socialists all over the world and is dictated by simple efficiency. The exclusive position of women in modern society not only gives rise to special demands on the part of the women proletariat, security for maternity and childhood, gaining civil and political equality of rights, reforms in housekeeping, and so on, but it also necessitates significant modifications in the method of agitation and propaganda among the female half of the working class. It goes without saying that this does not destroy the unity of the movement. On the contrary, thanks to the efforts of social democracy and its leadership, the women's proletarian movement, like a fresh stream pouring its waters into a mighty river, fuses with it and raises its level. In the present time, world social democracy no longer contests the necessity and desirability of special work with women. For a long time, the fear of feminism forced not only socialists, but also socialist women to shun any such division of labor. Though it emerged in theory and in principle as a supporter of women's rights, it also took practical steps to defend the interests of women workers. Social democracy, nevertheless, for many years made no effort, 
nor employed any means to arouse the drowsy, submissive masses of women. If the organized workers did win better conditions of work and life for the women workers, then they did this not with the participation of the women worker herself, but on her behalf. And this was their main mistake. Only separate individuals, such as Luisa Otta in Germany, who in 1848 addressed the Brotherly Union of Workers and indicated the necessity of involving women, too, in the workers' organizations, or the ex-worker Henrietta Law, the only woman member in the General Council of the First International, who attempted to organize women workers in England, showed any initiative in this respect. But their attempts were defeated as much by the indifferences of their own comrades as by external obstacles of a political character. In addition to this, there was that hostile attitude towards the rivalry of female labor, which for a long time held sway among the male proletariat, and which forced many trade unions to close their doors to women. This hostility, this mistaken and narrow-minded conception of their interests, has not completely disappeared even now. One still comes across echoes of it in England, in the Scandinavian countries, in France, and even in Germany. Sound notions of the unity of the movement, corresponding to the real interest of the working class as a whole, are only gradually making headway. But of course, it is only a small thing to open up working organizations to women. To awaken women's consciousness, to give scope to its activity, new methods and a new approach to the masses of women are needed. Germany was the first to progress along these lines. August Bebel's book, Woman and Socialism, the gospel of every woman socialist, did much to assess this question and to elucidate it correctly. Having established that the woman question depended on the solution of general socialist problems of our times, it nevertheless noted the specific peculiarities of the position of women in capitalist society, which of themselves define the necessity of separate work within the female proletariat. Now, I just want to pause there and really emphasize that these are Kollontai's words, that August Bebel's book, Woman in Socialism, or Woman Under Socialism, depending on the translation, is, quote-unquote, the gospel of every socialist woman. Uh, as I've said on previous episodes, I think I might end up doing a, a special little episode just on Bebel alone because he was such an important influence on Kalantai. But I just think it's really funny that she here is really giving a kind of shout-out to one of her intellectual heroes. All right, now back to Kalantai. It is usually thought that the separation of the women's movement in Germany was made necessary by external reasons, enforced by the existence of laws which forbade women access to political organizations. This conception is radically wrong. One must not forget that after 1892, the restricting paragraph only referred to women's participation in political organizations. Access to trade union organizations was, consequently, perfectly free. 
Moreover, in the 90s in Germany, it was precisely in the trade unions that separate special agitational work among the female proletariat was being carried out, preparing the ground for socialist propaganda among women workers. To cite this ill-starred paragraph of the German imperial laws is also inappropriate because when the time was ripe and the interest of the party demanded it, means were found to get around the embarrassing paragraph as well as everything else. Finally, when the law forbidding women to take part in political organizations was repealed, there was no longer in 1908 any valid external reason for dividing the proletariat according to sex. The organization became general, but the necessity of special work with women was by no means made superfluous. At the Nuremberg Conference in 1908, when they were working out the new party rules, the German Social Democrats recognized the necessity of retaining special work with women, separate women's meetings, women's own local and central representation, the women's central newspaper, women's conferences, and so on. Two essential moments economic and political, in the history of the workers' movement to find the necessity for separate work with a female proletariat. As the number of women workers grew, as they represented more intensified competition on the labor market, the question of trade union organizations for women workers became vital and acute. In the name of the interests of the trade union movement, in the name of the successes of the struggle of the proletariat, it was necessary to render harmless these scattered, dispersed, and unconscious elements, which appeared as a serious hindrance to the movement. In other words, women too had to be drawn into the trade union struggle. In 1895, the General Commission of Trade Unions of Germany founded a Women's Agitation Commission, sought out new methods of approaching the female masses, and carried out special agitation and propaganda among women workers. And throughout the 1890s, the Gleichheit newspaper appeared as the spokeswoman for a women's movement, which was predominantly economic and not political. The second moment which determined the necessity for separate work among women within the framework of the Social Democratic Party was the political moment. In a whole range of countries over the last 10 years, the question of electoral reform, of the further democratization of the state system, had become more and more urgent and acute. Under this influence, there was a noticeable change in the attitude of the political workers' organization to the women's workers' movement. While theoretically acknowledging the advantage of attracting the female proletarian elements into the political struggle, the party had not felt in this the same sense of urgency as had encouraged the trade unions to look for new ways and methods which would provide a way into the mind and heart of the woman worker. In the 1890s, not one workers' party throughout the world had manifested its activity in the field of organization of the female proletariat. Although at the party congress at Gotha in 1896, at the insistence of a group of women social democrats, it had confirmed the post of a female confidential agent who would undertake responsibility for all work among the female proletariat. The German party, when it drew up its new party rules in Mainz in 1900, 
forgot to include this point, but all it took was for the question of electoral form in the German Landtags to come onto the agenda, and their attitude to the German women's movement changed. The party's indifference to this question had deep and vital roots in the following. While women were deprived of political rights, the involvement of women in the party cadres had incomparably less significance for the immediate successes of the Social Democrats than energetic work among the male proletariat. Agitation among women workers was somehow intangible. It was work, not for the present, but for only the remote future. The question of radical reform of the electoral system brought women into the circle of the political fight. Getting women workers, these possible future voters, into party life acquired a topical interest. The women's socialist movement in Germany began to make rapid progress from the beginning of the 20th century, since from then on it met with full sympathy from part of the party. That is precisely the moment when the struggle for electoral reform was flaring up in the country. All right, I'm going to stop right there because I'm really struggling to record this podcast. I've had to go back and re-record sections over and over again because I'm really having a hard time concentrating on the text. And I'm also finding myself a little out of breath as I read, but mostly it's not being able to read because I'm just really finding it a bit of a struggle to concentrate on this document right now. So, but this last section, this last paragraph is really important. And I just want to highlight that it's interesting here because this is a moment when the agitation of what Alexandra Kollontai would call the bourgeois feminists and especially the suffragettes in England and those women who were agitating for women's political rights, especially these bourgeois women who wanted to get the franchise, the fact that there was increasing pressure to expand the franchise to women and to women workers actually did have an impact on the socialist workers' movement. Because what Kollontai is saying here, and she's not giving any credit, by the way, to those bourgeois women who are agitating parallel to the socialist women's movement in order to get the right to vote, but that as the Social Democratic Party of Germany and other socialist parties in Western countries started to recognize that women might win the franchise soon, and of course they did, but as there was increasing agitation to make sure that women had the right to vote and especially working women had the right to vote, it turns out that this put pressure on the party organizations in these Western countries, these leftist parties, suddenly felt like they had to go out and start working among women workers, not only to get them into the trade unions, to get them on board with the economic program, but they also understood that women would be voters and that if you were going to seek an electoral path to socialism, if you were going to try to get 
socialist parties into the parliaments that women as voters, not only as workers, but women workers as voters, not only as members of the trade unions, would be essential to your political program. And so much of the agitation that was being done among women workers was going to be done in the party, not only to get women organized as workers and trade union members, but also to get them organized as as um, voters. Uh, gosh, you see, I'm just really, really having a hard time finishing a sentence. But anyway, I'm sorry if this episode is a little bit more discombobulated than episodes in the past. I'm really struggling with this long COVID stuff. So thank you so much for listening. And as always, keep up the good fight. <laughs>